This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance. Sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. Today's Risky Woman is Sadia Mujib. I'm pleased to be here at NatWest Markets in London uh, speaking with Sadia. So welcome. Thank you very much, Kimberly. So Sadia is the global head of hedge funds, asset managers, prime brokerage and central clearing houses. She's also a was a finalist in the 2018 Women in Finance Awards as Banker of the Year. And she is a tutor at the Henley Hedge Fund Program. So we've got lots to talk about today, I think. So let's start by you telling us a bit more about your career, what's been your journey to date, and what have been some of the highlights? Sure, absolutely. So welcome. So I currently, as you said, I'm the global head of hedge funds and asset managers, prime brokerage risk, and central counterparty clearing houses. It's a mouthful, so I'm going to say <laughs> CCPs now, going forward, um, at NetWest Markets. But prior to that, so my career, I really started at from the Barclays Graduate Scheme, I was one of the fortunate ones that was had two international assignments during my graduate scheme. Fantastic. Yes, they don't do that anymore. Uh, so I was in Dubai in FX sales, implementing our e-commerce solutions for our corporate clients in the Gulf. Responsible for budgets, 21-year-old with money and people <laughs> at her disposal. <laughs> and then after that, I was back in London uh, working for... Accenture, Barclays did a joint venture with Oracle, Accenture. This was an e-commerce B2B initiative, and I worked for the strategy partner there. And then finally, I went to New York to work in hedge fund credit. So I worked for both the global heads of hedge fund credit and hedge fund analytics. So this was the quant side, Mm. and that was my calling. It was fantastic. Excellent. That's great, actually. I think, as you said, the the graduate schemes have certainly changed a lot because they were, you know, very costly, I guess, to do those global assignments, but also just an amazing experience in terms of you to be able to get a taste of so many different, not only countries, but functions to then think about what was your next step. Exactly, exactly. And then after that, I came back to London and the bank actually sponsored me to do my MBA. So these were the times where they were actually investing, which... Brilliant. It was brilliant. (laughs) And so you did your MBA at... London Business School. Fantastic. Uh, And I did that whilst I was working. So I recommend to anyone who's thinking of studying, do it whilst you're working. It's Mm. having that practical experience. It's fantastic whilst you're learning all the models and you get to meet different people as well. So what do you think has been the biggest risk then that you've taken professionally? So as I became senior, I had to manage teams. And as you're recruiting, there's always a thinking of you should get the same type of person with the experience in your team so they can hit the ground running. I'd like to try and mix it up. So the biggest risk I took was taking someone who didn't have the same background, who didn't come from a tier one university, 
but he was fantastic in terms of enthusiasm, capability and drive. And he was and is one of my best hires. He's done very well. Yeah, and that's really interesting, I think, in terms of how do you build teams that, you know, we want to talk about diversity in the broader sense of getting diversity of thinking. Yes. But, yes, obviously sometimes it feels a bit uncomfortable getting people with totally different backgrounds. Especially when, of course, I wasn't the only person who interviewed him, a lot of others interviewed as well, and they were of a different mind. So you have to convince and you have to take a chance. And that's a professional judgment you make. And it worked out very well. Mm, I think that's very interesting. And so, you know, you've obviously done so much in your career and you've managed to have a very global career as well. If you were going to pick three achievements that you were sort of most proud of, what would they be? In terms of sort of achievements, I would say leading teams and actually having good people who are now managing their own teams in other banks. That to me is uh, is something that I'm very proud of. And in terms of the credit crisis, if we talk about that, mm. uh, you know, remaining still on professional terms with those clients where you've had to have difficult conversations. So, I during the credit crisis, I worked at U.S. organizations, so Bank of America, Citigroup, and we were in the midst of sort of a lot of headwinds. I had to make difficult calls with clients that had been relationships with the bank for a while. It worked out really well because I was consistent, I was fair, and um, those clients have moved on to have other hedge funds and we still keep in touch, some of them we still trade with. So I think that we'll get into more of that because I think that's a very interesting area. Um, was there a third one? Oh, third one is the nominations. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. of course, I, I'm very, uh, I'm very happy that I've been nominated for the Women in Finance Awards again this year, and uh, the mm. Women in Banking and Finance Awards as well. Mm, fantastic, and we love celebrating uh, risky women. So we'll definitely add a link to those nominations so people can see more. And if you were thinking about the career journey and the lessons that you have learned, you know what's been most important for your success. I would say technical ability in terms of there has to you have to be credible. Mm-hmm. There has to be a reason why people are going to speak to you and come to you. And both internally and from a customer perspective. Correct. So mm-hmm. a trusted advisor status mm-hmm. is is where you want to be and that does require hard work and it's served me well. That's something that I encourage everyone in my teams to do as well. Continuous learning. Also, I would say Having a personal boardroom of advisors, that's been really key, uh, helping me look forward a couple of steps, not get too bogged down into the here and now, and really equip myself for the future. So we're looking at things like crypto funds. You know, We don't trade them here. However, that's a change that's happening in the market. It may take off, it may not, but it's something to at least be researching about, speaking to the right people, understanding I think that's excellent. I, too, think having that sort of board of advi- personal board of yeah. advisors to help you is very important. And people talk a lot about mentors and sponsors, but I tend to think of it a bit more like that and that you need certain people for certain times. Correct. And as you say, maybe some of them are helping you with that future-proofing yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. 
And so what are you passionate about beyond your current role? Because I know you chair the Women's Network and so I assume that's a passion, but you know, what else? Absolutely. So I definitely believe in giving back. So as you said, I'm a chair of 100 Women in Finance, their risk advisory group. So this is the peer-to-peer group in London. I, I believe you know, we can, should all be helping and supporting each other. And this is a very good way across all risk stripes to get to know your counterparts at other firms, not only banks. This is uh, hedge funds, asset managers, insurance companies from credit risk, market risk, operational risk, investment risk. So across all stripes. So that I'm certainly a passionate believer of that. I also am the chair, global chair of Premier, which is the Professional Risk Managers International Association. This is uh, not sort of male or female, it's mixed. Mm. It's And it's fantastic because it's a committee built up of chief risk officers of banks primarily, and we're building out to asset managers and hedge funds as well, talking about in the future, what are the risks that we should be aware of, having breakfast sessions, talk about what are people doing Mm. in respective firms under Chatham House rules. So it's, again, sharing best practice. So as we move on to your sort of expert opinion area, even just on the risk advisory group, what are the hot topics at the moment? Absolutely. So we did did cryptocurrencies a couple of weeks ago. We had EY come and present from Switzerland and London to talk about sort of legal framework, accounting, talk about what's happening in the market, what the key concerns are that the chief risk officer should be aware of. Uh, Of course, it was a very energetic debate because some people believe it, some people don't. We did that. Uh, We've also done climate risk. How would you price climate risk in the future as a risk officer? How would you incorporate it into your loan underwriting? So that's we had Imperial University come and speak on that. Yes, I'd like to do more on that. I mean, it's interesting because the Australian, or certainly the Australian Institute of Company Directors, and even now the Reserve Bank is highlighting this as a key risk that people, and certainly for boards, Mm. need to be thinking about. So I think it's a really interesting area. Exactly. And then the final one we've done is looking at diversity. So the Parker Review in the UK recommends that there should be Uh, one ethnic minority person on the board by 2021. Then it also encourages people and firms to start looking at their succession planning within their executive teams. So it was just sharing ideas what other firms are doing for their diversity planning in the risk functions. Obviously, you've talked about your career really, you know, focused around hedge fund credit risk as well as obviously other things. But I think hedge funds are an interesting area. Can you share a bit more detail on your current function and and the focus of that team? Absolutely. So currently at NatWest Markets, uh, I have four teams. The hedge fund team, they are based in London and New York, and we're growing out in Asia. In terms of the focus, it's really looking at bilateral and prime brokerage clients. Uh, The team will meet with the hedge fund, conduct the on-site due diligence, make recommendations on initial margin and documentation, and then we will trade. And then then it's the ongoing monitoring that you'd expect from a counterparty credit team, uh, looking at ATEs, should they be breached? And when I say ATEs, I mean additional termination events, 
For example, if the fund loses X percent of NAV, they will get around the table with the client to understand what's happened, what should they do, are we comfortable with the risk? If not, what's the next step? And also understand what's happening in the market. For example, Brexit, we saw volatility in the market. What Does that mean there's large margin calls that we should be aware of? What are we going to do with that? So it's a really good holistic role. You have to understand markets. So you have to understand counterparty credit risk. You have to also be a relationship manager because you're speaking to clients directly, both internally, sales, trading, and externally, the clients themselves. Sounds very interesting and, yeah, really kind of 360-degree sort of view in terms of what you need to have skills and knowledge of as well as then your interactions internally and externally. Now, hedge funds have often been portrayed as a fairly high risk and obviously also high return. Can you give us an, an overview of, you know, what a hedge fund is and then where it fits into the sort of overall investment industry? Absolutely. So hedge fund, misleading when it says hedge, they own hedge. They are leveraged vehicles looking to make return no matter what market direction. So they're looking for absolute return. They use that by leverage. Therefore, they rely on counterparties such as banks to provide that leverage. That's where the credit risk assessment of the firm's infrastructure, so the credit officers will go and meet the hedge fund, they'll look at the strategy they're implementing, understand how they're going to implement it, what the risk controls are, what the back office of that hedge fund is, how they manage their liquidity. That's all important because these are risky vehicles. They have small amounts of capital, but they take outsized exposure. As an aside, I guess, but are you seeing more women leading hedge funds? Because obviously that's where 100 women in hedge funds sort of came about. Are you seeing more on the rise or not really? There are the the well-known hedge fund managers who are female. Not currently, from my experience, Mm. uh, I haven't seen uh, more fund managers that are women. Mm. It's primarily being Mm, it's an interesting yeah. area, isn't it, in yeah. terms of why or yeah. why not? But, but there are very good fund managers. I, the CEO may be a man, but underneath them, they will have portfolio managers that are female. Right. And 100 women in hedge funds. I was actually doing a um, showcasing of all these portfolio managers who are female. Ah, excellent. I mean, back to your role. Can you can you give us a sort of a day in the life of the global head of, of credit research? What does it look like? <laughs> it's very busy. <laughs> I mean, it was, so the typical day really starts uh, in the morning, making sure I read the paper on the way in. So this will be on the web, you know, looking on, online, on the way on the tube, understanding what market movements have occurred, looking at emails over, overnight from our New York colleagues and Asia colleagues, if there's anything that requires my input or approval or anything I should be aware of. And then in the office, I'm looking at, we have a dashboard to understand any major market movements that will impact our clients. So we have a daily stress test of our portfolio and anything that's outsized, the credit officers should be reviewing and then highlighting up to me. And then I just overview across the portfolio. So that's for the hedge fund. Sounds really easy. (laughs) (laughs) If only. (laughs) Absolutely. And then normally I'm going to see either a client or there'll be internal meetings. Uh, so with a client, it'll be the large clients where we do an, not only an annual due diligence, but it could be a fund update because we want to understand what their 
thinking is, what their views are on the current market events. It's really keeping close. And then after that, it's a lot of internal meetings. It's a bank. So we have a lot of project meetings, a lot of committees. And then I try and spend an hour at least a day either speaking to one of my mentors or mentees. So trying to get an outside view other than the day to day. Good. Oh, that's very interesting. That's a that's a good tip, I think, yeah. for, for people to sort of think about other things they can add to their to their day. Exactly. Now, you mentioned before you were talking about the, the credit crisis or, or the global financial crisis and what uh, some of the your experience during that time is. So I'd really like to sort of dig into that a bit more. You know, what was key for your role, I guess, the sort of before, during, after the credit crisis? Sure. So I mean, the credit crisis really started at least in EMEA, in 2007. So early on 2007, there was a large hedge fund uh, trading ABS that blew up. I think that was one of the first ones that I had experienced in my career. And it was, an, it was a very good lesson learned because the client, I had built a good enough relationship with the client that I got the call saying, you know, please don't default us. That is a, not a call you want on a Wednesday night at six o'clock, but it happened. And when you look back, you, you sort of see the early warning triggers and that's a lesson learned is don't ignore those warning triggers when clients are disputing margin calls simple things like that where you they could be arguing about valuations yeah I'm not a valuations expert I rely on other team to do that but it's to make sure that you follow up you keep on top of other people who you're relying on so that was one of my uh, first experiences in the credit crisis I also worked with the traders to close those positions out. And this is where where you have that relationship. It's so simple because the, the trader had an excellent relationship with the bank I worked in with the hedge fund. I had a very good relationship with our traders. So we did that very quickly. We returned money back to the clients as well. And we did our duties there. The follow-ups were all the reports that the individual was getting but too much you know no no individual person can go through 40 reports every day in their emails so one of those lessons learned is dashboards are important with the key information and I think everyone's sort of learned that lesson since the credit crisis yeah that whole kind of information overload which I think you know many of us suffer from in in different ways but that's interesting so sort of teamwork looking for early warning signals and then better information that's really actionable rather than just too much a wave of you know data at you exactly exactly oh that's very interesting and and what do you think that the future looks like and the future landscape but also just you know what sort of changed well we've seen the emergence of ccp so these are clearing counterparty clearing houses the advantage of that initiative is that you have transparency on the trades because the CCP then is your counterparty. However, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that hedge funds, asset managers, clients can't access the CCP directly. They have to come through a bank. Therefore, someone in credit risk has to do a credit risk assessment on the counterparty to permit those trades to be executed. So I, I that's my, my concern is that people have a, have a false, they, they think that we mitigated risk by having CCPs in place. We haven't. All yeah. we've done is just shorten the time horizon. That's yeah. all. Yeah. 
That's very interesting. And I mean, still, um, uh, we had a, a good uh, session on ethics and compliance. And that was a, a similar conversation of where people almost think that there's so many rules put in place that it removes responsibility of, you know, the correct behaviour and actions almost. Yeah. So it's a very interesting balance between how you ensure that you've got people doing the right things at the right time. Yes, yes. And also, remember, we've got, banks have got a cost challenge. So there is a lot of focus now on robotics and AI. I was going to say, what is the, you know, what else is going on? What do you see as the big changes? I, I think robotics for me makes sense because it's automating tasks that, yes, you shouldn't have individuals typing in data into a spreadsheet for it to then go into another spreadsheet. You know, you can have uh, robotics do that. AI is a bit different. Uh, I think AI is quite good in terms of compliance for surveillance. Do I think it's good for risk management? No, because risk management is not a science. It's an art. It uses scientific data. However, ultimately, it is a decision made by an individual based on their experience and what's happening in the market. I don't think current AI models can do that. Maybe in the future they can. I don't think we're there yet. I think that's another very interesting topic is, uh, you know, the risks of AI, um, because I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of things about bias and other problems with AI, but obviously there's definitely some great applications. But then, yeah, that whole difference between what you can automate and then what's the human element that still needs to add that value exactly. is very very and then you have governance issues how so yes. if an ai model is making a decision who is going to ultimately be accountable if it's the wrong one that is fantastic very interesting and obviously your role is fantastically varied across so many different areas um, and also great to hear all of the the work that you're doing Uh, for uh, the different associations that you're working on as well. So thank you very much for that. On to one of my favourite sessions, which is the rants and revelations. Okay. Risky women rants and revelations. So what's your revelation, so your top piece of advice for emerging women but also men in risk regulation and compliance? Absolutely. I would say treat people the way you want to be treated. Is that a revelation? I don't think so. I think it's just a guide to <laughs> live by. Um, you know, integrity is important. You, without it, you won't have a career. Yes, very Not good. Not only in risk, anywhere. <laughs> and I also think that that builds trust, and trust is Absolutely. so incredibly important. Yes. Builds your reputation. Yes. So on to the other side, what's your rant? So if you were the, you know queen of the world for the day, what would be that thing that you would change? I would say risk should stop being considered as a back office function. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a back office function. It is a decision-making division. Uh, And yes, we do make unpopular decisions, but you've got to remember someone has to apply the brakes or we're all going to go off a cliff together. And our last round, our rapid fire round. So what is your one word to sum up the world of risk and compliance? Multifaceted. Ooh, (laughs) nice. And your uh, top risk for the year ahead? Political. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> it's very interesting times in which we live. Absolutely. <laughs> and the cure for the cost of compliance. Technology. Mm-hmm. And your outlook for the year ahead. Are you optimistic, pessimistic or neutral? I'm optimistic, but that's just my personality. Yes. And then we'd like a few recommendations, which is just for, you know, a bit more fun. So what's a book that everyone should read? I was Liar's Poker, a classic, but it's fantastic. And something for us to watch. Billions. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. And what's your favourite podcast? I have two. So... uh, I would say the Guilty Feminist is, of course, very good. Mm-hmm. And Simon Sinek, so he's uh, excellent yes. for leadership, and especially as we change focus with millennials who have a different career trajectory than everyone else did. I love a podcast, as everyone knows, so um, I'm always adding to the list. So thank you very much, Sadia. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, we've got lots of great information there. So thanks for joining us on Risky Women Radio. Thank you very much, Kimberly. This episode is brought to you by our founding sponsor, Refinitiv. Refinitiv serves more than 40,000 institutions in over 190 countries. Refinitiv provides information, insights and technology that drive innovation and performance in global financial markets. Refinitiv enables the financial community to trade smarter and faster, overcome regulatory challenges and scale intelligently. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Risky Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong, For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be a part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter, or even reaching out to me directly by email.